You're listening to On Human Rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Today we have an interview with Alice Washram from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute, interviewing Leila Denisa Obreja, a visiting scholar at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute and a PhD candidate at Bond University in Australia. Her area of research is intimate partner violence. Good morning, Leila, and thank you for being here. Uh, you will tell us a little bit about what your thesis is exploring, right? Uh, yes, thank you for having me. Uh, so my research is focused on exploring uh, states' due diligence obligations to prevent intimate partner violence. And it approaches the concept, which will be abbreviated in this conversation as IPV, uh, through a human rights discourse, so seeing it as a human rights violation. So the purpose of all this is to determine how fulfilling certain individual human rights can lower the risk factors associated with IPV, which can be individual or relationship-related or societal. So the project focuses primarily on Australia, but it can definitely benefit worldwide because the main theme is this emerging, uh, emerging due diligence doctrine, which is consolidating as customary law. Um, so what this doctrine does, it expands the traditional dichotomy of uh, positive and negative obligations or even the trichotomy associated with um, economic, so, social, and cultural rights, um, and establishes obligation of conduct rather than the traditional obligations of result that we, we see in the international human rights system. What is intimate partner violence, and how does it differ from other types of domestic violence? Well, intimate partner violence comes in uh, many forms. So first, it's a type of interpersonal violence occurring between two individuals in an intimate uh, romantic relationship. It happens in uh, homosexual relationships as well as heterosexual. And um, of course, women are much more likely to be victimized. But to understand the concept, I think we need a few mentions. So a first mention would be in relation to the term violence itself. In this uh, case, it means an intentional use of uh, physical power or control against um, oneself or against the other person or even uh, against an object or a pet in a situation. So against uh, private property, for example. Uh, that can result in uh, injury or death or psychological harm or deprivation or maldevelopment. So intimate partner violence can be physical, which is the most ob obvious manifestation, or it can be non-physical, in which case uh, it's emotional or psychological or economic. So I would say again that some of these abusive manifestations are obvious, Some of them are subtle, for example, financial control or snooping, which uh, basically means invading your partner's privacy, or even um, these uh, behaviors towards uh, personal property. And uh, it's usually that these types uh, of subtle controlling behaviors uh, that require attention and early interventions to prevent the cycle of abuse from going further and reaching these stages of um, <clears throat> physical Violence. So, going back to your question on how it is it different from domestic violence. Uh, well, domestic violence also includes um, 
elder abuse or child neglect or child abuse or even honor violence or forced marriages. So all these um, forms have something in common, which is um, the element of intimacy and familiarity between the individuals. But they do differ in motivations and how they are um, perpetrated. Uh, and so do the theories of causation used to explain them. For example, in intimal partner violence, the main theme would be feminism, right? And how patriarchy influences um, as a risk factor and how it's a stable factor interacting with other risk factors. But uh, for child abuse, uh, the explanations revolve around the prejudice against children and how we see them as uh, subservient to adults. And all this interacts with psychopathologies of of the parent or social environmental stress. So I think it's important to dissociate intimate partner violence from domestic violence or even violence against women uh, to really understand how these uh, relationship dynamics change and how these specific circumstances might, might trigger it. And at what point does intimate partner violence become a question of human rights? Well, human rights is a big theme in intimate partner violence because uh, it constitutes a violation of human rights. Now, depending on um, the abusive episode in question, it can be either a violation of the right to life or prohibition of torture, or it can be simply a matter of discrimination and inequality, although that is not a simple issue. So elements such as intensity, duration, uh, severity, and uh, the outcome are fundamentally important to distinguish between a matter of discrimination or to trigger a severe state responsibility for a failure to prevent torture, for example. So it all depends where exactly an abusive episode is situated within the whole cycle of violence. So there's no like one size fits all response here. It's um, But there are strict obligations of conduct, uh, due diligence obligations uh, regarding the ways all these forms can be prevented. So, for example, uh, CEDAW imposes um, strict obligations to, to take all appropriate measures to prevent intimate partner violence um, affecting women. So, uh, obligations that refer to tackling inequality or eliminating uh, gender stereotypes or empowering women financially, all of, uh, all of which are fundamentally uh, connected to risk factors. For example, uh, low levels of education or um, economic stress or male dominance in the family. On the other hand, we have um, other relevant instruments such as the ICCPR or the CAT um, that impose um, the prohibition of torture and demand that states act uh, diligently to prevent it. So at both an international and regional level, this torture discourse uh, in regards to intimate partner violence is starting to come forward and uh, states have been reporting these matters of domestic violence or intimate partner violence to the CAT committee, um, including Australia. So for these severe cases, uh, both the physical ones as well as the non-physical, there are obligations to prevent it um, degrading treatment or torture. And finally, another theme is the right to life. Uh, which we have a new general comment 36 of the Human Rights Committee, uh, which is only available now in the form of a draft, but it will be uh, soon adopted, which mentions the duty to protect life uh, specifically for victims of domestic violence. And um, it talks about the duty to 
um, of a state uh, due diligence obligation to take uh, long-term measures to address the um, general conditions in society that may eventually give rise to direct threats to life. So um, even at the ECHR level, for example, we see more and more cases of intimate partner violence that are sanctioned uh, now under Article 2 and 3, which are prohibition of torture and right to life. And uh, for these severe cases, we will most likely see at international level also complaints under under these provisions and under other uh, human rights bodies than CEDAW. But however, approaching intimate partner violence by fulfilling uh, the rights in the CEDAW and ta- tackling these broader inequalities uh, represents the best approach to making sure that the cycle of abuse does not reach uh, the severity of uh, torture and um, of the right to life. And uh, there is another idea in regards to to uh, children, for example, because young age is a risk factor in intimate partner violence. So the CRC is another relevant instrument, as well as the CRPD for people facing uh, multiple vulnerabilities for people with disabilities. So uh, basically, the in- International uh, Bill of Human Rights is all strictly connected to to this type of violence. Now, just for information purposes, the CEDAW is the Convention to End All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. The ICCPR is the International Convention on Civil uh, Civil and Political Rights. And the CAC Convention is the Convention Against Torture. And the ECHR is the European uh, Convention on Human Rights. Now, could you give a few examples of how state actors can help to prevent intimate partner violence? Yes, well, uh, these... Potential interventions are various, and they depend on when the intervention will occur um, in the time frame of a cycle of abuse. Again, um, of course, some behaviors are, uh, some abusive behaviors are sporadic and are completely unpredictable, which are much more difficult to prevent. But usually, um, let's say there are predictors of abusive behaviors. So once a state actor has the knowledge um, of the abuse. Now it's paramount to intervene and proceed to triggering um, the legal system. And here's where doctors, police, prosecutors, and, and um, any other state official basically getting gaining knowledge of the abuse comes in. Uh, and here's how uh, the notion of due diligence comes up because state officials have at this point an obligation of conduct to ensure that the victim has access to the legal system, to support services, to protection orders. And at the same time, uh, in this phase, uh, there needs to be a fostering of confidence um, in these systems and a reformed aim at addressing a victim's uh, fears and needs. So each case will be different because each victim will be different. So each response and intervention really needs to be tailored to the victim um, through a multi-agency coordinated approach. Now, state actors might not have knowledge of the abuse. Let's say in a situation where a woman is controlled financially by her partner. She's not allowed to have any hobby. She's not allowed to have a job. Uh, and she's financially dependent. The state doesn't know about it. So in this case, it's all about these deeply rooted inequalities that I was um, talking about earlier. And here is where the scope of the intervention has to be uh, broadened and where affirmative action policies and financial empowerment policies should be enacted. 
Because actually this is where intimate partner violence really thrives upon these gender stereotypes and inequalities. So um, the sooner these individual risk factors are lower by fulfilling um, economic rights, um, such as access to education or equal political participation, the better to lower the prevalence. In your opinion, do you think that the state should play a proactive role in regulating intimate relationships? Um, well, of course, all these interventions will depend also on the willingness of the victim to disclose the abuse and seek legal protection and redress. So there are many cases where victims are unaware that certain behaviors do constitute intimate partner violence or Even if they are aware, love and affection, you know, play a very important role in um, their agency to break this cycle. So awareness is extremely important and can be complementary to state action. And it's no longer a matter of should because these obligations are there. And um, to a different degree, most states have been showing uh, a willingness to to try and prevent intimate partner violence, but uh, the problem, uh, the fundamental problem, I would say, at the moment is um, the implementation. It's at the time of implementation where some policies really fail because um, how complex the issue is. So I think that states can and should interfere up to the point where prevention and redress are possible and are available and everyone is aware of the long-term possible risks of abuse because these uh, these risks are so many. Use of uh, alcohol uh, or harmful substances or mental health issues, anxiety, depression, PTSD, low self-esteem in women, reproductive issues, and of course the impact that it has on, on all the children witnessing this at home. So Both the individual and the community costs are immense. So, yes, I think it can and it should. Thank you very much, Leah. Thank you. That was Alice Wadstrom from the Rao Wallenberg Institute interviewing Leila Denisa Obreja, a visiting scholar at the Rao Wallenberg Institute and a PhD candidate at Bond University in Australia. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Loon, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll be back soon with more talking to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law.